Uh, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're continuing our study through 1 Corinthians. And the last time we were together in 1 Corinthians 15, a couple weeks ago, we were looking at um, verses 1 and 2, and we kind of did an introduction to the chapter. So this message is entitled, The Importance of the Resurrection, Part 2, because we started with part 1, verses 1 and 2. We're looking at verses 3 through 11 this morning. I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Please follow along with me. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James... Then to all the prophets, all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Well, as we come and we're thinking about resurrection, I mentioned before that 1 Corinthians 15, if you could, if you could refer to the love chapter as 1 Corinthians 13, then the resurrection chapter in the Bible would have to be 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul is building a case here uh, about the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how he was responding to what was likely seemed to be uh, something that was creeping its way through the church in Corinth, and that is some were denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But resurrection itself, even prior to Christ, or even in the scripture elsewhere besides Christ's resurrection, we have other accounts of people being raised from the dead. Who comes to mind in scripture? What, what examples can you give me this morning as we open up here of somebody being raised from the dead? Lazarus, okay, yeah, Lazarus in, in John chapter 11, he had been dead for four days. Um, for two of them, he'd been in the tomb. His body was already to, uh, starting to decompose. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came, he must have been hopping out because he was still wrapped in the, the bands which they wrapped around a corpse. And it was just before this that Jesus said in John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. So Lazarus is a New Testament example of someone who was raised from the dead. Who else was raised from the dead? Eutychus. Yeah, Eutychus. Paul raised Eutychus from the dead. Paul was also partly responsible for Eutychus dying, <laughs> right? Because Paul was preaching until midnight. Eutychus fell out a window and then died, and then Paul raised him from the dead. So Paul was very involved in that. He had a big contribution um, but it was the Lord who raised um, 
Eutychus from the dead, Acts chapter 20, verses 9 through 12. Who else? The widow's son. Well, now, there's a lots of, there seems like there are a lot of widow's sons that get raised from the dead in the Scripture. There's, there's more than one because we do have, um, uh, let's see, the widow's son in Luke 7, 14. Jesus, uh, what's great about Luke 7 is that it said Jesus felt compassion. Jesus had the heart that just ached when he saw his people ache. But you may remember that um, we have the widow's son in 1 Kings 17 with Elijah. Elijah had been staying from time to time uh, in the home of a widow and her son during a terrible time of drought and death. And during that time, the son of a widow became very sick and died, and Elijah was not there. So uh, she brought her son to Elijah in her arms and said, Have you come to bring my sin into remembrance and kill my son? And Elijah said to her, give me your son. And he took the son out of her arms, and he took the boy's body to an upper room in the house. Three times he stretches his, uh, his, himself over the boy's body, and he said, quote, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. And in 1 Kings seventeen twenty two, it says, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. Um, there was another son who was not of a widow, but a Shunammite woman. Her and her husband looked after the prophet Elisha from time to time. And apparently, if you had a sickly child, it was a really good thing to have a prophet staying in your home um, because um, Elisha often stayed in an upper room in their home. But the boy died. She put the boy on Elisha's bed and went to find Elisha. Elisha stretched out his body over the boy. And remember, the boy sneezed seven times. Um, I don't know what the significance of that is. I'm not a multiple sneezer. I know guys, people who are multiple sneezers, but uh, it, it, it was just a detail that uh, that's what happened. But he was resurrected from the dead. Um, any others you can think of? Sorry? Tabitha. Tabitha. That's right, Dorcas. Yeah, so um, Peter raised Dorcas, also known as Tabitha, uh, a woman who was known for her kindness and helping the poor. That was in Acts chapter 9, verse 40. Another one, also from, sorry? Somebody have one? Jairus' daughter. Yep, uh, Luke eight fifty four. Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus. Um, they, uh, they ridiculed Jesus because he told them to stop weeping because the child was not dead but only asleep. And in Luke eight fifty four it says, but he took her by the hand and called, saying, little girl, arise, and her spirit returned, and she rose up, she rose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. Any others? Yes, Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 through 53. This is a fascinating one, one that we sometimes forget about, but in Matthew 27, verse 50, it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So it was right at the moment that Jesus had had been um, crucified, that he died, and before he was buried. It was shortly after this that uh, one of the soldiers said, surely this was the Son of God. And uh, verse 
Matthew 27, verse 51 says, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So we have this bizarre verse without many details at all. We don't know what happened. We just know Old Testament saints who had died right at, after the, the Christ had died. They, they rose, they came out of the grave and appeared to many. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's more we could say about that, but I'm just going to leave that at that for right now. Um, there's one other that I, was, that I have down here, um, and that is 2 Kings 13. This was an interesting one. Remember, there was a funeral procession where the family was taking a loved one to be buried, and on their way, they came across some Moabites who were marauding. They were raiding tombs. So it's kind of like, hey, we were going to bury him, but there are some people that as soon as we bury him, they're going to try and dig it up and steal, I don't know, whatever he might be buried with. Or I, don't, you, I mean, to steal from dead people, that's yuck. Uh, but... Um, uh, Anyways, uh, so they decided just to place the body in a nearby tomb, and oh, look, there's Elisha's tomb. And so they, they said, well, let's, Second um, uh, Kings 13, 21. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. So the tombs in those days, remember, were cut out, uh, hewn like caves sometimes, and you pull the rock away, and then there's some various beds for family members that were carved out of rock. But anyways... They said, well, let's put him right here next to this corpse. Turns out to be Elisha's. It says, verse, uh, 2 Kings 13, 21. So they threw the man, man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. That would have been, I mean, just a memorable funeral. <laughs> hey, do you remember that time when we were getting ready to bury you and we saw the thieves? And man. Yeah, yeah, where's that tomb? We have something better, you see. We have something better. So, But um, the reason I pointed this out, these nine different examples of resurrections in the Scripture, what is the difference between Jesus' resurrection and those resurrections? Somebody might say, well, I mean, Jesus, you know, yeah, maybe he was raised from the grave, but there were others. The Bible's full of stories about people who were raised from the grave. So it really wasn't a big deal. Yes? Jesus got a glorified body. So it's true. His body was different. He, he, could, um, uh, he could enter a room that was locked. Uh, he could uh, uh, appear to people, and sometimes they didn't recognize him. Sometimes they did. He decided who would recognize him. Um, he still had wounds that were recognizable at times, but other times... I mean, he looked like a gardener to, to you know, um, the, the, first, the first people who saw him. So when we think about uh, his resurrected body, he ate fish. So it was, he could be touched. It was different. It was similar, but it was different. Uh, it was not decaying. It was, whereas everyone else was raised from the grave and they later died. Jesus didn't die. He what? He ascended. He ascended into heaven. What, what else makes it different? Yes. Jesus raised, himself. Jesus raised himself. He had authority. 
self-authority, which is given to him by the Father in his... This is, I mean, this is an amazing thing. Jesus is God. Jesus is God in the flesh. And yet, Philippians 2 tells us that he laid aside certain attributes. He became nothing. He, be, he, he, he became... He humbled himself. And so he... How does God who created everything and is over everything, experience learning how to walk, learning how to talk. And somehow Jesus, as God in the flesh, came down and learned, right? Jesus grew in stature and in favor with God and man. Uh, so we have this, this, this God who could experience what it's like to be human except for sin, and yet he had authority. John ten eighteen. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay down my own at my own on my own initiative. That's I'm the one who will, who who will die when I say I'm going to die, and I lay it down. I choose to give my life. Is what he's saying. John ten eighteen again. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Which brings us to another difference. Yeah. He predicted his death. And his resurrection. That's right. Um, so Matthew sixteen twenty one. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. That's just one reference, Matthew sixteen twenty one, where he told his disciples he'll be raised up on the third day. Um, Matthew seventeen twenty three, Matthew twenty nineteen, Mark nine thirty one, Mark ten thirty four, Luke eighteen thirty three, Luke nine twenty two. Many references where he referred to a future resurrection. I, I categorize these with uh, with the letter A. It's my little acronym. So I have he has authority. He made an announcement. He had an ascension. Forty days. Forty days was the after after he was on earth for thirty days, appearing to people, and then he ascended. Um, and he had aid. Aid was, is the last one, and that is that Jesus makes it possible for all other resurrections. Jesus, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. There are many other references I could take you to. Romans 1, 4, Romans 5, 18. For by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, but through the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Um, Romans six, 15, Romans six, five, first John five, 11 and 12, John chapter two, verses 19 through 21 and John ten seventeen. Those are just some verses, but this is important. This is important because, uh, if you really believe this, if you really believe that Christ's resurrection was different, even from other resurrections that are recorded in scripture, Christ's resurrection is completely different because he had the authority to do it himself because he is God. He, has, he was predicted. He, he was able to announce it beforehand. He ascended. He did not, his body did not see decay. And he, had, he makes it possible or he gives aid to others. It's because of his resurrection. It's the first fruits of many more to come. And so that should change your life. People who really believe in the resurrected Messiah have a hope that the world cannot understand. Your hope will be on eternity and you're thinking about things in this earth that are wrapping you up and getting you all, you know, people are saying, how are you handling this? And you say, 
this is, you know, I said in Romans 8.18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You can't even compare it. I say this over, it's one of my favorite verses. You're going through a difficult time. Nobody gets to heaven and says, I suppose it was worth it. The sufferings cannot be compared to the glory. You will not look back and say, you will say, that was nothing. That was nothing. Look at what he has done. So you have a hope that the world doesn't understand. You are thinking about eternal things and investing your life in eternal things. What you do, what you say, um, what you give to, it's different than what the world does. They're thinking about retirement. They're thinking about earthly comforts. And you have a peace a peace that has so much uh, confidence in a future because Jesus Christ rose from the grave. There's a question in the back. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, so the question is, uh, Hebrews 9.27 says, the point for man to die once and after this comes the judgment. Uh, what about all those people who died and then came back to life? Were they judged? So there, there are a few answers for that. One is in Luke's gospel, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus, a different Lazarus than the one who was raised from the grave. But this is the Lazarus who was poor. The rich man was rich. Lazarus, the dog, licked his wounds and he loved it, right? This is, remember, and, and Lazarus obviously was righteous, considered righteous by God, so he ends up going to heaven, or actually it's called Abraham's bosom, and it's a place of the grave. It's Sheol in the Old Testament, and that place, I think it's what, Luke 16, uh, it describes a place where the place of the dead. So um, one possibility is that Old Testament believers went to a place of the dead where uh, it was a place of peace and comfort and there was a great gulf separating on the other side where you can see there was a place of torment where even a drop of water on your tongue would relieve your pain, right? Uh, And and, and they were in so much torment there. And so um, then it seems as that one possibility is when Christ died that he made it possible for those now to be with the Father since sin had been propitiated, sin had been paid for in full. And it's possible that in Matthew 27, those Old Testament saints who appeared in Jerusalem were just kind of on their way up, okay? But I don't want you to think that we can get a shovel and dig down and find this place, Sheol. We're talking about places that are, like we think of time, but one day time will end, Heaven is, is in a place that is, uh, uh, you know, beyond what we can imagine. And, it's, and, and, and so I don't believe in soul sleep. This passage that we have actually talks about that some will sleep. If you take a look at our passage, um, it says that um, uh, the 500... Um, in verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of them who remain, but some have fallen asleep. It's passive voice there. I love that Paul uses the term fallen asleep to emphasize the fact that they are really alive. 
But I don't believe that, but we know that there's not soul sleep because, why? Scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that's for Christians today. So when you die, instant heaven. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, to live as Christ, to die is gain. And so that gain will come, and it's not, you're not going to have to wait for it. So I don't know exactly how it's going to work. It's possible that uh, if the rapture happens tomorrow, and it's possible, for, it's possible for the rapture to happen today. Nothing needs to happen uh, in order for that to happen. I mean, it, there's no, we don't need to build a temple or anything. Uh, rapture could happen at any moment. Rapture happens today. I go straight to heaven. I'm worshiping the, the Lord. It's possible. I could see my grandfather who died in 1984. I was 14. I knew him well. I could look at him. It's possible. I could say, wow. And I could say, you know, how long have you been here? And he could say, oh, I've, I've, I just got here. But, but you see, we're outside of time. We're not in this earthly thing. So I, I don't know exactly, but I do know that, um, and that judgment which will come, there are two judgments. There's the Bema Seat judgment, which is for believers, which is one of rewards. And there is a final judgment, great white throne judgment, that actually happens after the millennium. So, um, you know, to answer, does that answer your question about Hebrews 9.27? To give you a little bit, um, it says then the judgment, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone goes through that judgment, you know, from the Old Testament saying, now you're judged, you're judged, you're judged, continual judgment as people die. Does that make sense? A little bit, thanks. Okay, we can talk later. All right, so let's get to our text. Um, and, and I want to, um, okay, we, we saw last time we were together, verses 1 and 2, if you did, we saw, we were looking at basically in verses 1 through 11, three consequences of denying the resurrection that should give you a greater appreciation for the resurrection. Remember, our goal is that by studying the resurrection, this is going to transform our lives even more. This is going to give us more hope, more, hope, more joy, and enable us to encourage other people more and be bolder in our proclamation of the gospel because the resurrection is important. It is essential for our faith. And we're looking at three consequences if you deny it. One, you deny the gospel. And he's taught that in verses 1 and 2. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you have received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So specifically, you would deny that the gospel should be preached, should be believed, that it changes lives, in other words, in which you stand, you're standing in it now, and you deny that it saves. So you deny the resurrection, you deny the gospel. Paul says we can't deny the resurrection, you're denying the gospel. A second consequence, if you deny the resurrection, you deny the scriptures, verses 3 and 4. It says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And so we have this indication that Paul is saying, hey, if you deny the resurrection, you don't believe God's Word. You deny the Scriptures. Not only did Jesus raise from the grave, but both in the Old Testament and the New Testament was prophesied long before that he would rise again. And so I love the summary here of the gospel message. It says Christ died for our sins, verse 3, that our sins, I think that a lot of commentaries point out there could be a, an allusion to 
Isaiah 53, which several times in that pass, in that chapter, it talks about our sins. In the same way, it's, it's almost, it's the same wording here as three times in that passage, if you look at the Greek translation of the, old, of the Hebrew scriptures in the Septuagint, we have the same wording for our sins, on behalf of our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, twice in there, according to the scriptures. So we have both Old Testament and New Testament passages um, remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? They saw Jesus when he was resurrected. Luke 24, verse 25, and it says, He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and then to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Who would have liked to have been there? Jesus expounding the Old Testament from Moses through all the prophets with scriptures pointing towards himself? No wonder they said, hey, our hearts are burning within us. Was, this guy can teach. I know he wants to keep on going. Won't you stay with us, you know? Um, and you think about um, even on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached, he quoted Psalm 16, an Old Testament psalm written by David a thousand years before Christ was born. And David said this about Christ. Verse 25 of Acts chapter 2, he says, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. I'm going to give you some other verses, and I want to move on to our third section in this, in this, in this um, passage, verses 1 through 11. But I, I, want to get, I want to just read some verses from the Old Testament about a future life and hope that they had. Job 19, verse 26, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. What does that tell you? Job, probably the oldest book written in the Old Testament, believed in a future resurrection. Um, Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? We saw that last week. Um, Isaiah 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears from all faces. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of dawn, and the earth will give birth and the departed spirits. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. These are Old Testament passages. We have more than 200 Old Testament passages quoted in the New Testament, and if you include passages that are paraphrased or alluded to, the number increases to about 1,000 Old Testament passages quoted or referred to or alluded to in the New Testament You're denying scripture if you deny a resurrection. If you say a resurrection, impossible. The Holy One will not see decay. The descendant of David, the Messiah, the anointed one. So if you deny the resurrection, you deny the gospel, verses 1 and 2. If you deny the resurrection, you deny the scriptures, verses 3 and 4. If you deny the resurrection, you deny history, verses 5 through 11. Before we move to that, any questions on anything I've said so far? I don't want to lose anybody. We want to take time. I don't want to rush through this, but I want to rush through this. All right? Yes? Yeah, so Paul knew that he was writing Scripture. And we know that in the Old Testament... um, we know that the Old Testament canon is, was complete because Jesus um, uh, referred to the Old Testament, worshipped, listened to the Old Testament, quoted the Old Testament, recognized and affirmed the Old Testament canon. So we know that the canon that we used in the first century, and we know what that was, was affirmed by Jesus. We also know that the New Testament canon is complete with the book of Revelation because um, uh, Jesus authorized his apostles to write it. And so um, when, we, when we think about that, and Paul, who wrote 13 um, epistles, which are in our, out of our 27 books, um, uh, where is it in Peter? Somebody can give me the reference. I know you got it. Um, where it says that um, um, the other scriptures, he refers to... Uh, the writings of Paul, and the other scriptures. Peter recognized Paul's writing as scripture. Somebody have that? Second Peter 3 is what we're going for. You'll find it. Somebody will find it. Uh, I can't think of it off the top of my head. What's it say? Right, so he's quoting Paul there, right? And so, so it was recognized even at the time that this was the very word of God, that apostolic authority meant something, that the apostles were given authority to, to record Scripture that was on par with the Old Testament, all right? Um, okay, so you deny the Scriptures, you deny history. Um, so... I love this part, verses 5 through 11, because it recounts some of the appearances, and it's almost like Paul is in a courtroom, and he's just bringing witness after witness after witness. We see really six appearances in verses 3 through 11. The first one is to a special witness, and that's Cephas, Peter. Verse 5, and he appeared, and that he appeared to Cephas. Now, if you were Jesus, which you're not, and I'm not, and here's, how, here's why we know. Here's how we know this, okay? Because... If I were Jesus, 
and I rose from the grave, who would I go see first? Who would you go see first? Pharisees, Caiaphas, yeah? Your mom, yeah? It's a good point, yep. How about Pontius Pilate? Hey, your hands clean? You know? You feel like you feel good about this? You know, because, and then see, that's the sinfulness of man. I want to show up to Pontius Pilate because I want to just go, and <coughs> just jab him just a little bit. Like, hey, you need to be making better decisions before you crucify God. <laughs> right? But who's on God's heart? Peter, who denied him three times and who felt just terrible about his betrayal of our Lord. And our Lord gives him hope, uh, encourages him, saw him. Um, he, appeared, he also appeared to some who were expected. He appeared to some who were expected witnesses. It says in verse 5, then to the 12. The 12 is a group of, it's, it's basically a phrase used to describe the 12 apostles, even if there were not all 12 of them there. So at this time, obviously, Judas is not there. Uh, and Thomas was not there the first time that he appeared. Later he did. So it was the 10. They're still referred to as the 12. So we have this, the 12. It's, we know who they're talking about, those who were his disciples here on earth, the 12 disciples who remained faithful. Uh, and so, but these men are one of the greatest testimonies because their lives changed so much from before the crucifixion until after the resurrection. They scattered at the crucifixion and they became so emboldened that they died for their faith. Listen to what one, one courtroom judge said about the testimony of the apostles. He's a, he's a modern day court. He was, a, he was on the Supreme Court of South Carolina at one stage. And he, he, this was his observation, reading through the scriptures as though there were evidence given from witnesses. He said, the quote, nothing could be more absurd than the proposition that a number of men banded themselves together, repudiated the ancient faith of their fathers, changed completely their mode of life, became austere in professing and practicing principles of virtue, spent their entire lives proclaiming certain truths to mankind, and then suffered the deaths of martyrs, all for the sake of a religion which they knew to be false. Nothing could be more absurd. So he appeared to a special witness. He appeared to some expected witnesses. He appeared to a multitude of witnesses. I love verse 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Uh, 500 at one time. We don't even know who they were, but by the time this was written, which was about 20 years after the resurrection, um, uh, there was many of them still alive who could testify to this. Hundreds of people who saw the resurrected Christ. Um, and again, I just, I just love the way that, that um, we think of our Lord and the hope that he gives and the way that even Paul writes, fell asleep. Um, 
A fourth group. So we saw that a special witness, some expected witnesses, a multitude of witnesses, a fourth appearance is he appeared to an unbelieving witness. It's possible in verse 7 we have somebody who had been unbelieving until this appearance. It's possible. Um, uh, He says, then he appeared to James. Now, he could be talking about one of the apostles named James. There were two, uh, James the son of Zebedee and James the son of Alphaeus. But it's more likely, because he's already covered the apostles, that he's talking about the half-brother of Jesus. Remember... um, In John 7, verse 3, his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. John 7, 5, for even his brothers did not believe him. So these are the half-brothers of Jesus, one who was named James and Uh, James, we know later, became one of the most outspoken leaders in the early church. So, again, we could spend more time on that, but let's move on. Not only um, that unbelieving uh, witness, but he appeared to some repeated witnesses more than once. It says, then to all the apostles, verse 7b. So, Uh, We know that the apostles, the term apostle, by the way, means sent one. And so when we call the apostles, we're talking about the 12, like the capital A apostles. But there were many people who were called apostles who were sent out as sent ones to do various missions, to do various missionary work in the early church. But in that early, those 40 days, he appeared to those who were called apostles um, and... um, you know, in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it actually says, the, f- the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So, It's possible he could just be speaking about the 12 apostles. It's possible that there were others who became sent out once later. But what's interesting is that he brings them back on the stand again, and he says, so tell us how many times did he appear to you, what it was like during those 40 days. It it wasn't just what we have recorded in Scripture. What Paul was referring to is repeated visits that Jesus was making to people. Um, So we see a special witness an expected witness, multitude of witnesses, believing witnesses or unbelieving witnesses, and then repeated witnesses, and then verses 8 through 10, an unlikely witness, an unlikely witness. Verse 8, and last of all as to one untimely born. It's a curious phrase. It, um, it could have referred, in ancient times, that phrase was used to speak of somebody who was premature or even a miscarriage. But when you think about it could also be used for a, I guess, post-mature. Is that what they call it, post-mature? Post, post-term, post-term baby. You know, after 42 weeks, you're like, when's that baby coming, right? Uh, so uh, I think what Paul's trying to say here is he was a late bloomer. He'd say, I, I, was, I missed the boat. 
I was not there during his earthly ministry. I was not a part of it. He appeared to me also, Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Right there, he spells it out why he feels like he's not fit to be called an apostle. And then, I love it, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's God's grace. Paul was amazed that God would take a sinner like him and transform him into one who testifies for the resurrected Lord. And if it were not for the grace of God, he would still be killing Christians and persecuting them and pursuing them. He, he was not just satisfied to persecute Christians who were where he was. He got permission to travel around. And here's a witness of somebody who was so against Christ and his church. That must have been so awkward at moments. You know, the, the apostles talking about, hey, remember Stephen? Paul's thinking, oh, no, you know? How can I be a part of this group? It's amazing. Um, God's grace is such a great gift. 16th British reformer John Bradford used to say when he saw criminals being taken off to be executed, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. We look at other people and we say, they deserve that. They deserve that punishment. But for the grace of God, you deserve worse, and you could be in their same position. It was uh, Jerry Bridges who said, your worst days are never so bad that they're beyond the reach of God's grace, and your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. We must be careful that we don't look at ourselves more highly than we ought to. Paul says, but I labored more than all of them, verse 10. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So he he saw that the grace motivated him to be more abundant. And he summarizes it all in verse 11 with the testimony of a common message. He says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believed. Paul says it doesn't matter whether it was an apostle whether it was a hurting apostle like Peter, whether it was the 500, we all testified, we all proclaimed, we all preach, and we continue to preach. We all preach. Preach there is in the present active. It's continuous. We all have been preaching. We are continuing to preach the gospel. And um, what I love about this passage, what I love about this, and we'll close with this thought, is that Paul leaves no middle ground open. He says, either you also believe in the resurrected Christ and your life has to be so different because of that, or you deny it and you're not a Christian and you have no hope in any future life and you have no way for your sin ever to be paid for. Choose this day whom you will serve. He makes it so clear. He's so just person after person after person. Decide now what you will believe about the resurrection. It'll either change your life or you will continue in your sin and you're not really a believer. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. 
We thank you for the opportunity that we have to look at Paul's testifying, his testimony, his courtroom where he defends those, defends the resurrection to those who said there can't be a resurrection. And we ask, Lord, that you would take these truths and help us who believe to stand on them, that our lives and the way we respond with other people is confident in you. Father, we know that you are able to keep us from falling and to present us before your glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, we pray be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.